Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 201. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy at NetworkNerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Hey, John, I am doing great. Highly caffeinated as usual. We are a couple of pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Awesome, Nick. Hey, I just wanted to mention that our second site, graph.nerd-journey.com, is now live. We've been mentioning it for a while now, but always want to reinforce that. That's the uh, knowledge graph and link notes version of our main pages show notes that we developed to make it easier to explore our episodes, um, our guests, the topics that they talk about, link to where else those topics came up, where we mention another guest, you know, have a clear link to find out everything about that guest and everything that they've talked about. It's I think pretty cool. And, uh, we're always looking for feedback on that. So let us know how helpful that is. And, uh, yeah, tweet and DM us. DMs are open about that. Let's get on to this week. Uh, we have Yvette Ed- Edwards on, right? She's a, a VP at VMware, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. This year she transitioned to VP of solutions engineering in the public sector. And it seemed like it'd be really interesting to have an executive leader on and maybe a little bit about the origin story and what the transition up to that level of leadership was like, we should probably do this in something like two parts because just one is not appropriate for us, is it? Ooh, yeah, two parts. I'm not sure that we have that much experience with doing two-part interviews, but yeah, okay, well, we can try that. Always always nice to break that up. Yeah, so like in this first part, I would say the things that kind of jumped out at me were we had an interesting discussion about the degree background that she came from and the early part of that career and the jobs that she had, and then the chancing into sales engineering. Always interesting to hear that origin story. Also, I think a little bit later on, she had a very personal experience with imposter syndrome that I found fascinating. Just want to like put those out there, some highlights to, to watch out for. How about you? Yeah, I think I would add the the presentations and the way she approached those, how she gained experience and, and how that related to the imposter syndrome because it's extremely interesting. So definitely listen for that. Here we go with part one of our discussion with Yvette Edwards. Yvette Edwards, welcome to Nerd Journey. Thank you, Nick Cordy. Appreciate you being here today. Can you start by just telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do today, please, ma'am? Sounds great. My name is Yvette Edwards, and I have the pleasure of working for VMware, and I am the Vice President of Solution Engineering, serving our public sector customers. Yeah, that's a that's something we definitely want to dig into, but before we do, let's rewind a little bit, Yvette, and talk about the early days in tech, because you didn't start in the solution engineering funnel, I don't think. I definitely didn't. And um, I know for a lot of people listening out there, you know, whether they've 
know the term solution engineering or sales engineering or sales consultants. It's uh, <laughs> the whole SE gig is not something that you, uh, um, some people don't aspire to be as um, when they're in college because, you know, everybody wants to be a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, if you look at the uh, course catalog, I, I don't think I've seen sales engineering there, but yeah, I didn't start out there for sure. But you started out, I think you started out in software development. Is that right? That's correct. That's correct. So I, um, I studied um, MIS in college. I, I uh, you know, learned uh, C++ and uh, actually COBOL as well, right back in the day. And um, AT&T came to my college. So, you know, go back to a senior year where everybody's like interviewing to get that, that big first job. And AT&T shows up. It was definitely one of my destination employers. They had a big, uh, beautiful new building that they had built in, in Oakton, Virginia. So um, I went to George Mason University in Virginia and they are looking for developers. So I'm all excited. Uh, we had just learned C++, which of course was developed by Bell Labs. So I, I play it up in the interview. I'm like, you know, I love C++. I love C. It's just incredible language. And they were like, great, we're hiring COBOL programmers. And I'm like, oh, I love COBOL. <laughs> so yeah, so I'm also dating myself. But yes, I was hired as a software developer, mainframe, COBOL, um, IMS, IMSDB. So yeah, back in the good old mainframe programming days. What made the development job interesting from a I really like doing this perspective. Yeah. So for me, I loved I loved um, programming because it was problem solving. So I loved that. I loved um, creating. I'm not an artist. I don't I don't draw or uh, <laughs> sing very well other than the shower. So it's my way of creating something from from scratch and just building something that you know. There's a lot of programs that I built that are still maybe in production today. Definitely when um, and we'll get later to that. But when I was um, at Oracle and I built a some software um, programs for the IRS, which was one of my customers. So, so yeah, I really enjoyed that part of it, but it was definitely the problem solving, the challenge of, you know, just taking something and writing code to solve a problem. Can you maybe talk about that MIS track in school? Because that's something I think that doesn't necessarily exist anymore. It's called something else. You know, typically MIS is usually a little bit distinct from a, a computer science degree in its uh, business focus, right? Am I understanding that correctly? That is correct. Yeah. Yeah. So the um, management information systems, and it was a very new uh, degree back in the day. And I think it was probably something people hadn't heard of when I first got it and it had its heyday for 20 years. And I think you're right. I think it's something that, although my daughter did get an MIS degree at Florida State, I think she graduated in 2011, but I think some schools may not have it as much anymore, but it was a great sort of unification or marriage of business and, and technology. When I was a freshman in, in college, you know, trying to decide what to, what to study, my dad's like, go into the business, business rules the world, you know? So I wound up sort of, you know, starting in the general business school, you know, kind of taking accounting and economics and all that classes. And then when you went to specialize your junior and senior year, I saw that they had the MIS track and the development piece really excited me. So the last two years are very CS focused. You know, I even took assembler <laughs> architecture class that's where I got exposure to all the programming languages. So we did uh, COBOL, we did um, C, we did uh, PL1, we did just a bunch of, you know, different classes. So it was very CS focused the last two years, but it was great having that foundation of business and understanding how to read a, a balance sheet, <laughs> so to speak, which is really interesting as, you know, you look at solutions engineers today and it's something that we actually teach them, you know, how do you read a 10K and, you know, how does a company make money? So it was a really great um, marriage of the two. And I think that a lot of stuff that you study in MIS is very similar than those that have a CS degree and then go back and get an MBA. Interesting hybrid degree. I think 
it takes somebody to get like a CS degree with like a minor in business in order to accomplish what was accomplished in one degree before. That's so fascinating. And then when you were doing mainframe development, was that on more business applications or other stuff? Yeah, it was a combination of many, but it it was um, at AT AT&T, you know, we definitely um, sold circuits. So it was even tracing, uh, we call them um, like different private lines and, and just doing the circuitry to the other points of the circuits. And then that's how the billing would occur. So it was a lot of algorithms to do that type of stuff. Then we also worked on the AIC system, which was an online account inquiry system. So, you know, nowadays we have GUIs that, that write great things, but we actually wrote all that stuff in like green screen, <laughs> like where the tab would go and all that. So I, I'd say I worked on four or five different projects, but um, I think I started out with a circuit component that really did do a business system because at the end of the day, you take all that data and you create billing out of it. Oh, that's that's fascinating too. So that is almost like tracking. Yeah, like even fiber, right? Like we had invented fiber, so you have to think back then. And then, and then I tried to take credit for it, but AT&T invented fiber. So yeah, even even just, uh, you know, there's different points and how far you could do a stretch. So you had to kind of understand the underlying circuitry and then translate that into code. And that's really what is interesting about programming is you're taking the physical world and you're translating it into basically the virtual world, right? But you're coding everything that happens in real time into something the machine can understand. This is an interesting one because you didn't have a telecommunications background going into this, right? So that was a new domain that you got to learn about. It. This takes me back, John, to the David Babbitt interview where he talked about learning DNS and DHCP while he was programming at IBM. And the knowledge of coding gets you more specific domain expertise in the industry you're in and the internal systems that the the code has to interact with. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. It was very, very exciting. And just, you know, again, not having a electronics degree, but kind of, you know, getting one. And it was very interesting. So um, when you went into AT&T, you went into a 90 day kind of new start program, like a new hire program. And it was 90 days of teaching you how to code their way, right? Because they had their standards. And so, and so basically all you did for 90 days is they would give you different projects and you'd write the code and you'd have to go all the way from design so the, the instructors were sort of your, um, we called them the, the essays at the time. So they were the ones that you know gave you requirements and then you would go back and ask them questions, make sure you got the requirements right. And so we just, um, and it was a pass or fire class. So you were just basically graduating from college and then going straight into, into another college class, it seemed like to me, right? Because it was pass or, pass or fire. So you had to pass the final exam, which was coding this big project and if you passed it. And it actually, the computer actually, uh, as you wrote in different things, it gives you little smiley faces. That's how you knew you passed but that was at the end of the 90 days. But during this class, we are, as um, developers, we're part of the management staff. So we were called MPS, which was management programming staff, because everybody else was union. Like if you were a developer, or you're doing something in corporate, you're automatically management level, even though we weren't managers, we didn't manage anybody, but you had the distinction of management and then everybody else would be union. And those were the, obviously the telephone operators, the people on the lines, and so it was a CWA, which was the Communication Workers of America went on strike. They go on strike and then they tell us and we're, you know, 21 year old college new, new hires, right? And we're sitting in this class and they're like, well, they've gone on strike. And um, we're like, okay, well, what does that mean? You know, they're like, well, you're a manager. So, you know, you might have to do strike duty. So we're kind of on standby. So they stopped teaching us and we're just kind of like, you know, hanging out in class, like watching movies and <laughs> trying to figure out what they're going to do. So at, at some point they deploy us and now we are out. Basically what would happen is when 
they go on strike, you know, as a manager, you go and you take over their job. Well, luckily my job was then to jump on a line and climb a pole, <laughs> but um, we were flown to Philadelphia. And what I did on strike duty was I was testing circuits. And so we'd have to learn how to test the circuit line. So I kind of, all I really did on strike duty was go from one class to another class because we weren't electrical engineers. So it took them about three weeks to train us on how to do the job. So by the time we were trained, the strike was over, but it was very interesting because it was the first time I had ever gone on a business trip or flown anywhere, you know, and I think they made us watch uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, which I didn't watch horror movies and <laughs> watch this movie. And here I am alone in a hotel room by myself having, having watched this scary movie. Anyways, the really interesting part was having to cross a picket line at 21. And of course, I'm just, you know, I work for AT&T. They're my employer. They're telling me I'm going to go fly out and do this job. And then you have to realize that you show up at, this is a Bell AT&T Bell at, in Philadelphia. It's a big giant building with like a, there's like a gate and there's all these people picketing and yelling at you and calling you a scab, which I didn't know what a scab was. <laughs> and so I, we had to cross this picket line every morning. So that was very, very daunting. And it was my kind of first entrance into the corporate world. And yeah, it was another interesting experience. Yeah. That could get hostile real quick under the right circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you do, you felt sorry for them. And then you realize they've been on strike for at this point, three or four weeks, maybe a month. And so maybe, you know, a month without a paycheck. So you can kind of understand where they were coming from. But for me, I was just like, Hey, I'm a developer. They told me to go show up at this place. <laughs> so, yeah, but we were management staff. So we were the enemy. I'd say they, they said not kind words to us, nothing violent so interesting that experience of being in a technology organization which also had like a really strong like labor component i think that is increasingly rare it seems these days at least the last two or three jobs that i've worked at did not have that it was you know almost everybody was an exempt employee was earning salary yeah you're right very large majority of non-exempt employees yeah it's very interesting dynamic I think maybe that just has to do with like fewer and fewer interfaces with the real world, like the physical world. And maybe it's just the um, waning influence of labor. That's definitely uh, a trend in the, uh, in the world or in the States anyway. You mentioned that transition later on until into Oracle. What was the, that transition like? Was it just a chance? Was it something that you had decided was, you know, strategic or a good next step for you. Um, how, what was the context of that? Yeah. So, um, you know, we had started doing some gone from three GL to third generation to four GL. And then, you know, we, we'd done some informix. Um, I don't think we were using Oracle, but we were, did use some DB2. So we were starting to do some four GL work, which was very interesting. And I was actually assigned to a project where we were building everything in informix. So it was very, very interesting. And then um, what happened was um, we started, we always needed more staff and we would increase a new project. And we started hiring a lot of um, contractors from CSC, so Computer Systems Corporation. And um, then I started noticing that, you know, we seem to have more and more contractors that are being hired. And then there were some projects that were sort of being sunsetted. And then those people were sort of not being redeployed to other projects. So my girlfriend's like, I don't know. I think that they're starting to, you know, maybe not hire as many developers as before. Like she thought she saw it as a cautionary thing. And of course, she was older than me. And she said, you know, we should go to a job there and just see if, you know, there's other companies hiring developers. And so she kind of just teases me to come along. And so I went with her and we went to this job there in the DC area. And it was actually at an embassy suite where they just had 
all these different corporations there and you could just walk in and talk to them and AOL was there, you know, and I actually, I, I did go and talk to them, but they wanted the PL1 programmer and I was like, oh, I've got old technology. So um, I was really interested in looking at maybe Informix or something that was for GL. And so that's why I went past the Oracle booth because I knew Oracle was also a really cool development platform or database and development platform. And so um, I walked by and I looked at their, um, what they were hiring for and they were hiring for a sales consultant. So I was like, okay, so I just kept walking. And then uh, the, uh, the gentleman came out, uh, Mr. Watkins at the time. And he says to me, um, wait, aren't you going to come in? And I was like, no, 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 I'm looking for a software engineering job. And I don't know what that sales thing. I said, all you, you guys are just looking for salespeople. And he's like, well, wait a minute. Like, do you know what a sales consultant is? I'm like, no, no, I don't do sales. I'm an engineer. And he's like, well, come on in and talk to me. And so then that's when I first learned about the sales consultant or SE role. You know, he, uh, he, he told me about it and he tried to explain the, the nuances of it. And I remember him specifically saying, well, wait a minute. So you just sit in front of a computer and you code all day. And I'm like, yeah, it's just awesome. And he's like, but you have so much personality. To, you know, it seems like you really enjoy, you have great interpersonal skills. And that's kind of what this job is about is the combination of both. And so I was intrigued and then went through the interview process and wound up getting hired. And um, that was my very first foray into uh sales engineering. And uh, at first it was daunting and scary, <laughs> but I really, really loved it. And I really loved that it was different. And um, I remember my very first day I had to do an install. It was a remote install <laughs> in Chicago. And my boss comes in, he's like, he's like, you're going to be able to do this today. Right. And I'm like, I, I think so. You know, and I had to do everything. I had to get root access. And it was just, it was a really hairy install. And um, he's like, well, you know, if you don't finish it, you'll just have to fly out in the morning and do it in person. And I was like, what? <laughs> So I think I stayed my first day on the job. I stayed till probably nine o'clock that night to get it done. I was just, I'm like, I'm not flying out in the morning to <laughs> make these customers face to face. But what I loved about it and, and hated about it was I was put in these uncomfortable positions all the time where I had to do something that I didn't have experience on. I wasn't sure if I was going to get it done. You know, sometimes I would, I remember um, we had a product called data query and they're like, oh, you're going to go do a presentation on data query tomorrow. I'm like, I don't know this product. So I had to like teach it to myself, learn how to do the demo the night before. So I'd say that first year, there was a lot of uh, trepidation and scariness and keep thinking that I didn't know what to do, but somehow I, but I think that challenged me enough to learn it. And I wouldn't say it was great or that I was a great presenter at the time. And there was also a lot of presentation, which I was not used to, right? I didn't present a lot. And if I did present, it would be like a, uh, a program walkthrough where you're just, you know, you're presenting your code to colleagues, right? These are people presenting for the customers that you don't know. <laughs> and you're in your early twenties, you're a female. Um, so this would be like the nineties, the you know, and, and um, I'm selling to the government customer. So, you know, I walk in and then they, they look at me, they think I'm, they think the, the, the sales rep male next to me is the engineer and I'm either like his secretary or, you know, they have no idea I'm going to do the presentation and <laughs> just a lot of, a lot of other components. And I'm already feeling like, I don't know what I'm, I don't know this enough, but uh, it was all of that. It was definitely um, being challenged every day and just, uh, I guess, believing enough in myself, you know, even though I had that inner voice that didn't believe in me to, to succeed. Sounds like a little imposter syndrome hit you. A lot of imposter syndrome. <laughs> um, the worst part too, this is a kind of a funny story. So, um, you know, when you first start at a company and you're kind of sitting there that first day and HR comes and gets you and you have like all your stuff. So I'm sitting there with this other young man, you know, he seems to be my age, you know, and he's a new hire as well. And he tells me he just graduated, right? And so I'm like, oh, well, you know, I've been out of school for five years, you know, this guy just graduated from college, you know, I'm like, you know, so I'm feeling a little bit more confident about myself. 
And then um, him and I become close friends and everything. And, and we keep in touch because he gets assigned to another another team. And so he's like, oh, I'm going to do my first presentation today. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, do you want to come see it? And I'm like, sure. So I'm, you know, I, I go up to our this beautiful executive briefing room that we have. We're, our offices were in Bethesda, Maryland. And we had this big fancy room where the, you know, you push the button and the, the shades would go down and all stuff. So he's presenting there and he's up there and he starts presenting in French, <laughs> like perfect French. And, and I, I can't, I think we were presenting to the UN or something like that. And he's first of all, doing an incredible job. He's speaking in another language. Then he switches to English. And then I realized he just graduated from law school. The kid has a double degree. <laughs> he, I think he also had like a master's degree in computer science. He had a law degree. So he had just graduated from La Sorbonne in France. <laughs> so he had all this experience. So talk about imposter syndrome. I see him do his first presentation. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to be this good. And he's speaking in perfect French. <laughs> and he never told you he was going to do that before, right? You didn't know going into it. No, no, no. No, so, you know, when he said, oh, yeah, I just graduated from college, I'm thinking, oh, you know, he must be younger than me and less experienced. I'm like, oh, no, how did they hire me? And then I looked around and everybody was brilliant that I worked with. Everybody had PhDs. And I'm like, how did I get in? How did they hire me? So a little bit of imposter syndrome that first year. It's such an interesting job. I think the way you describe it coming in from the outside and experiencing it in, in your first year, I realize, oh, yeah, that is exactly what everybody must go through they don't necessarily understand that the job is to be to to develop this breadth of knowledge but not necessarily depth and then to be able to on demand generate some depth in what somebody is asking you about and go and teach it to them present to them and that type of skill isn't necessarily selected for anywhere. Um, maybe there are some universities that have a process where, you know, that's part of the process. Hey, everybody go learn something and come teach it back to the group. And that's how we conduct classes, but I haven't heard of it. So it's really fascinating that we don't necessarily have a way to find people where that is in their experience and comfort zone, or it's been trained into them before the stakes are, you know, higher. <laughs> it's so true, John. It's so true. And I think, I think to your point, it's context too, right? Because you can maybe feel comfortable about maybe the, the product, the widget, or maybe you've had a certain use case and then all of a sudden somebody throws you a different use case and then you start thinking about that context or that industry, or maybe not having that ind specific industry experience. Sometimes that could, you know, really throw you off. So really truly listening understanding what the context is of the question and always being truthful if you don't know the answer and not, you know, not winging it. Cause I think that authenticity and, you know, I think one of the biggest things that we have as essays is finding the answer. We may not know the answer, but we'll know somebody who knows the answer or we'll re research the answer. So that's something that I think I really relied on early in career is making sure that, you know, I was able to, you know, never, never lied to the customer number one. Right be truthful if I didn't know the answer. But I think how you get that credibility is making sure you go back and you give them some answer, you get the information and you, you don't, I wouldn't stop working with the customer until I got the result they needed. And sometimes you have to ask for help, which is hard. Yeah. Yeah. That back and forth, especially early career, right? You, you talk about having this fear of, you know, almost being found out that this was a mistake. Like my hire was a mistake, which is something that almost everybody goes through right? Unless you are, happen to be 
I don't know, just have like an overabundance of <laughs> of uh, self-confidence, like almost delusional self-confidence. Or right? lack of self-awareness in general. <laughs> right, right. Dunning-Kruger effect. I don't really know much about it, so I feel like I do. <laughs> Having that ability to be self-aware about that, but to also be honest about your lack of knowledge is a knife edge, right? The desire to appear authoritative so that you are protecting yourself in the position, but also be honest about what one doesn't know. That's a, a very difficult thing to navigate in that very first year or even just, you know, general early career about maybe, maybe that's not distinct to the sales engineering role, but it, you know, in the sales engineering role, we are asked to learn about so many different things, you know, almost like the entire product portfolio at an organization and all the different use cases for all the, you know, it's just too much to learn. Right. Yeah, I agree. I was going to say, it's like the help desk person. Hey, I have this microwave. I need you to tell me why it's not working. Oh, that, that doesn't have an IP address, <laughs> but I still need to go figure it out. Yeah, for sure. Is it plugged in? I don't know. <laughs> Definitely need that mix of humility and willingness to learn. I'm curious, Yvette, we talked about it a little bit, but how would you recommend someone determine whether sales engineering might be the right path for them? What kinds of qualities and interests would the person need to have? Yeah, I, I think the big one is, I always say it's curiosity, right? And just um, the need to um, have diversity of, of a day, right? I think that, um, you know, whenever I'm asked this by college students, well, tell me a typical day in sales engineering. And I'm like, well, there isn't really a typical day. And that's what I love. About it's a trick it. question. Yeah, I, I really do love that. I mean, of course, we can probably, you know, say interacting with customers, working with technology, we could probably say some of those things. But I think that you have to have some type of resiliency. And I think that there's a lot of us, I think I'm that person that gets, I get teased a lot because I seem to have a new role every year. <laughs> but it, it really isn't me seeking it. It just sort of happens. And we can talk about that later. But, but I think I sort of thrive in a dynamic environment where things are different. I mean, I, I think is I think if you know yourself to be somebody who truly loves technology, who truly loves interpersonal relationships, loves solving problems, loves interacting with people, all kinds of people, you know, all kinds of different levels. And 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 to me, I think that whether you're talking to a C level or a you know a systems engineer at, at the admin level, it, it's still people. So it's still just they just have different challenges, perhaps, or maybe different level of understanding. So those conversations are nuanced and different. But I think that there does need to be some sort of desire for a dynamic environment because you you are not going to be in your home office. You'll, you'll maybe be at a customer's office, which is going to be different. Um, you may be traveling. You may be on the road. You may be doing a presentation in a hotel room or perhaps on inside an office or a conference room you've never been in before. So you don't even know if your technology is going to work or how, you know, how to plug in. I think it's all pretty, pretty normal these days. But back in the day, you had to travel with your own data show because you know, most offices didn't have projectors. So, is there a a thing that you counsel people who feel like they're more natural introverts, or they're you know on that introvert spectrum as opposed to the extrovert spectrum? We kind of get a lot of this. It's like, well, that's not right for me because I'm more of an introvert, and that seems to be a myth, right? Like more and more, we're we're finding out that that's a myth. So, I I don't know. I just I guess my more direct question is like. You know, what is your experience in dispelling that myth? Yeah, I, I think that's such a great question, John, because I know 
the listeners may not believe this from just hearing me talk a little bit or my children won't believe this, but I was extremely introverted in my in my 20s. And I truly probably am an introvert. And, and I think the distinction between an introvert and extrovert is an extrovert gets energy by being around people and an introvert kind of needs that time away. But both introverted and extroverted people can be very sociable and, you know, um, be great public speakers. But I think that the difference between introvert and extrovert is an introvert after maybe perhaps presenting on stage for 90 minutes might need 90 minutes to themselves just to re-energize and have some quiet time alone. But I was definitely, um, you know, and being a developer was very easy to be introverted. You know, like I said, I didn't do many presentations other than, you know, you would have to kind of do your code walkthrough and have people do QA and things like that. But that was easy. I'm just reading you know, off of a piece of paper. So I think I will say that that was the hardest part for me in the beginning was doing presentations. And I remember doing a lot of practicing. My daughter at the time, you know, it's funny because she was only four years old and she would walk around because I think I must have repeated this a thousand times, like Oracle is not just a database company. And she'd be walking around, Oracle is not just a database company. <laughs> but um, I think, you know, I, I tried different tools, right? So for me, practicing a lot was kind of a way for me to get over some of those nerves not memorizing a script, but, you know, just practicing what you were going to say. So I would say that um, if you are an introvert and you're interested in this career, don't let that stop you is, how, is what I would say first. Definitely understand your boundaries. Um, if presenting feels very scary, um, and they always say presentation, taxes and death, right? It's that things that we're all scared of. But if that feels scary to you, just, just think about other times that you have done presentations, whether it was you know, reading a story to your children, whether it was, you know, presenting something maybe in church or a community center, and just think about why those presentations were successful. And it was because you had a message to get across. So if you think of presenting as more getting a message across, getting a story across, or, or teaching, because I, I really do love teaching people. So I think that's kind of what I leaned into. So if you are the type that likes to impart knowledge, share knowledge, or teach somebody, then just know that maybe you could too enjoy presenting as long as it had those outcomes. But I would say just if, if you are an introvert and this career does excite you, don't let it shy you, shy you, make you stop or prevent you from, from seeking it out. I'd say try it, you know, try some different presentations and, you know, Toastmasters is always a good one. <laughs> some people have done that before, but yeah, I'd say don't let it, don't let it prevent you from looking into the career. And the best way to practice the presentation skills is to keep doing it. Agreed. It is such a, a specific fear though that people have of standing up in front of a group of people at the front of a room facing away from the, the slide deck that you are presenting. And it's so specific that I, I just, I've actually in the past asked people to deconstruct it, right? What is it about it that's scary? Is it the fact that you're standing and facing them? Is it, you know, if you're sitting in a circle, would that be better? If uh, if there were all your friends, is that better? You know, like where, where is the line? Like there's some kind of like ramp up to like, oh no, that's not okay. And it's almost like every other skill. Like you, why don't you practice at that edge of your comfort zone and then push up that comfort zone, you know, continually. It, but instead of that, people just go, oh no, I never could do that. As, as if it's like a, a binary, like I, I can stand up and give presentations or I can't instead of a, you know, everybody's bad at it and then they get slowly, slowly better. Right. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. And I think that the best thing that I ever heard a motivational speaker say one time is that um, the best way to not feel judged is to stop judging others. So I think that we all really feel, you know, especially, you know, I see it with, with the teenagers nowadays, it's just, it's really hard for all our teenagers because I think there's a lot of judgment out there. So 
I think they're fearful to say anything, to do anything. But I think that that that's the essence. I think is that we're all kind of fearing of, about being judged. And I think that if we give everybody grace when we hear other presenters, maybe you know that would help us feel that, that others are giving us grace. But I think for me, where I get the most nervous is not knowing the material, right? So go back to the imposter syndrome. It's even ratcheted up more. If somebody said, hey, you're going to present on how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, I'd be like, okay, cool, I can do that, right? But I think for us, because it's technology, and most of the times I was presenting to people that, you know, had been working with Oracle for like 20 years, or I remember presenting somewhere up in Philadelphia, and these people were like PhDs on, you know, databases. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, how am I going to present to these people? So that would ratchet up my fear too. And that's why the authenticity piece is huge, because you can't present, pretend to know more than them. It's just not going to work, right? So I'm here to impart whatever it is that I'm here to impart. And, you know, of course, it would probably be a new feature or a new, a new piece or how we're attacking the technology that I did know. And I, and I would know, okay, I do, I am the expert on this. This isn't something that they know, even though they've been doing this for a long time. So I think as long as you kind of shorten the sphere of what you're speaking at, but for me, that's where my nerves get really bad is if I'm speaking about things I don't know <laughs> or think I will, or think there's no way I will know enough. Right. I'm with you on that. And then you have to be prepared for people to ask questions and anticipate those on top of not feeling like you know the material you need to cover. Exactly. And I want to know, Yvette, I, we can't go any further. I need to know if the peanut butter jelly sandwich would be crunchy or creamy. It's important. It would be creamy. Oh, wrong answer. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely creamy. Unless it's natural peanut butter and then it could be a little crunchy to it. Okay. There you go. <laughs> it's, a, it's a spectrum, right? It's not, it's not a binary. Yeah. I'm saying both is good. can you tell us a little bit about your perspective on the individual contributor path Mm -hmm. that's something that we've touched upon in the past and you know there's organizations you know such as i assume at&t had it i assume oracle has it i know that vmware has it you know having been there in the past i know that google has it you know where i am now this kind of progression of titles of of levels where you can stay technical um, not have to switch over to management, uh, although we do want to talk to you about that a little bit later on. But just your perspective on the advantage of that and, and maybe even the decision to progress, to focus on progressing in that in that path. Yeah, I will definitely say that um, I was very blessed because um, AT&T, Oracle, even Semantic Veritas and VMware, um, they always had great individual career paths. And um, to be honest, that, that was my career path. I was just going to be an engineer forever. <laughs> but it turned out instead of a software engineer, I did become a sales engineer. But other than that shift, I was going to stay an individual contributor. I really enjoyed my job. I really enjoyed the job. I really enjoyed the career. And even though I would I would do leadership type stuff, I never really thought they were leadership type stuff, like whether I was a team lead or I led a project or you know I did mentoring. To me, it was still individual contributor work. But I would say that sales engineering for most of the companies I know do does have a really strong individual career path, which is another reason to go after this career. There are some engineering jobs, whether it's mechanical, and you know my son's a mechanical engineer. Some of them really don't have a large career path. It's kind of mechanical engineering one, mechanical engineering two, and then you kind of have to go into leadership. So I think it's really great that at least I can speak to the VMware path and, and we have quite a level, I'd say at least six six or seven levels that we can go, which is really, really nice because you can progress and it really has to do with your sphere of influence and your sphere of impact. So that's how you progress through that career. I'm sorry, through those levels. So, you know, even though you may not be a leader, you're still making a bigger impact in the company. So you can go from maybe impacting just 
you know, your team, or maybe just your customer to impacting your team to maybe impacting your region to maybe impacting a geo. Um, so that's really exciting. So um, if you're that person that really is seeking for more in your career because you want to make a bigger impact, you're able to do that as an initial contributor. And I think it's a really, really good path. say I have not been through an organization where people were on strike and had to fill in for someone, but that sounded like an interesting time. And then the presence of more and more contractors. I like how Yvette relied on the, we'll just say spider senses of her more experienced colleague in light of that situation to say, okay, you know, maybe we should start looking around to protect ourselves just in case. Yeah, I like that as well. It really means that you have to create your own bank of experience, but you also create relationships so that you can rely on other people to say, hey, I've this feels like a pattern that I've gone through before, and maybe we should start to insulate ourselves from any, you know, possible issues. That that just makes sense. You know, just lean on all of your colleagues' experience, not just the ones that you personally have I, d I don't know exactly what the 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 thing that i would do i mean i guess maybe just you know we get approached by recruiters all the time so maybe it's just selectively saying yes to some of them you know uh once a quarter like just taking a meeting instead of just you know flatly turning them down or, or not responding at all you know just to like keep the feelers out there well what's going on with that organization you know what what do they see? Like, you know, why are they recruiting? You know, is it because they're growing or is it because people are leaving them and they need to replace? Like what's, what's going on? You know, you, you get, you know, more information about the marketplace, the job market, as well as uh, maybe specific companies and, and then the types of skills that are being recruited for. Well, there are two other aspects to that. You are building connections and building building a network that might be somebody that you could stay in touch with who becomes a really good friend or you help them out later they help you out later you you don't know but it's also kind of a way to do a very low pressure interview and practice that skill yes like you were talking about things to ask it helps you practice that muscle and strengthen it so that once you find something that's really exciting you can hopefully crush it right it's very very true I think it probably would feed into one of our upcoming episodes where we talk about what you need to do to, to write your resume and, and the actions that you need to take into account to keep that resume current. I like that. So if you're going through interviews uh, every once in a while, you know, a little bit more often than none, <laughs> that also means that you're, you're keeping that resume up to, up to date. And that's always a good thing. I, I really like the pattern that we came across which was the kind of chance meeting as someone recruiting and letting you know what sales engineering is it it is one of the main patterns for getting into sales engineering blind chance like yeah. just stumbling across it right <laughs> you didn't know it was a thing until someone told you it was a thing and encouraged you to do it right right that's that's one of the patterns another one is you interact with sales engineers and say decide to become one or make it a goal 
very interesting to to see that pattern again though and and i think that i hadn't really thought about that as one of the patterns until Givet talked about it and then i went oh yeah of course that is we need to kind of make sure that people know that <laughs> sure and this goes back to your point about being open to roles that maybe on the surface don't seem like they fit asking additional questions and just learning about it as you pointed out a couple of minutes ago yeah i think that if you find out about roles that you don't necessarily know about and aren't directly related to what you're doing today then maybe you find out about things that are interesting and you find out about a team that might be interesting to join and then you also find out about the skills that would be required to do that and maybe where your gaps are and things that you could start to look at addressing to to get into that role and maybe it reveals a gap that you have regardless of whether or not you intend to go into that role <laughs> it's just you know a different part of a business or or aspect of the industry that you suddenly understand and you're like wait a minute that's a useful skill to have for that role certainly but it would also enhance what it is that i'm doing today well i'll play the other side of that coin it may point out some relatable experience you have that you didn't realize that somebody else sees and i will just i'm just gonna gonna hit pause on that because we'll talk more about that next week yes yes definitely so I think one of the things that I'm glad I asked about, it was just kind of a spur of the moment thing, was sales engineering and whether that kind of rules out introverts. I think we had a really good conversation about that because, of course, within sales engineering and sales in general, there are both extroverts and introverts and ambiverts, you know, and anywhere on that spectrum of whether you get energy or it takes energy from you to interact with other people yeah and then the correlation between which of those categories you are and whether you like crunchy or creamy peanut butter i mean it's it's important yes absolutely as we heard yeah we are collecting more data on that mm -hmm. and i think we want to do maybe a like a pretty deep dive into that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. maybe a maybe a 15 20 episode series about that yeah yeah some presentations speaking of presentations yeah. Yeah. i liked the idea of presenting to people with more experience and getting the imposter syndrome because it's it's a hard thing to do. Oh, yeah. I have attempted to teach a Bible class to people who have been Christians longer than I've been alive. So that's a, that's a <laughs> little intimidating. And it's no different what Yvette talked about, people being PhDs or having 20 years experience in the field. And I think in these cases, we can make our definition of success smaller. Just like Ben Bergeron said in Chasing Excellence, control what the definition of success is, and yeah. that way it doesn't seem as insurmountable. And I'll just throw in that I love the fact that she didn't memorize a script because <laughs> I can't do it. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't feel genuine sometimes. I think that, that was an interesting, uh, interesting point there. I asked about, and it just became, you know, popped in my mind while we were talking, you know, that we do seem to have an educational gap. That is, we're not doing things in high school and college that would teach somebody to maintain a wide breadth of skills and then very, very quickly spin up on something specific, teach it, and then maybe over time release it if it doesn't come up a lot more. I think someone wisely once called it depth on demand. Oh, yeah, that guy. That was actually a really good phrase. <laughs> 
I could only contrast it with reserved depth. You know, if you want it for a one-year or three-year period, for example. Mm, mm. Yeah. I was thinking about it a little bit more, and I think we talked off of recording, but it did occur to me that the high school speech activity that I participated in definitely had an activity called extemporaneous speech. It had international and national news, current events, extemporaneous speech. So you had to do research and kind of maintain some research files and then go to a competition, be given an option of three different topics, go research it for, I don't know, maybe 30 minutes and then do an extemporaneous speech that lasted about seven minutes on one of the topics. And and that is about as close to an activity that, that kind of mapped onto this, you know, spin up a level of expertise and depth and do a presentation on something as, as I've come across. Again, this is one of those things that made me think, oh yeah, maybe high school speech and debate is like way more important as an activity than, than I thought it was. Great point. I hadn't thought of that one. There's also an activity called expository speech that is about as close to a competition in doing uh, PowerPoint slides as I remember. Of course, we didn't do it in PowerPoint. I don't know if they do it today in PowerPoint, but it was expository. Explain a process using visual aids over the course of, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes in a competition, you know, with other people that are doing different topics. It's fascinating. Fascinating activity. Wow. I don't know how to weave in the fact that I did uh, swing dancing also, but let's um, go ahead and toss that in. It is. Yeah. For yeah, metadata's yeah. sake, like, let's just put that in the knowledge yeah. graph. I got it. Yeah. There will also be a link. <laughs> I like, I like how you work that in. That's good. You want to just go ahead and work in episode 141 on deep work? <laughs> I, I think though, maybe, you know, we're going a little bit long, but I do want to reach back and mention, you know, one of the early points where Yvette was talking about her MIS degree and, and the types of things that it covered. I don't know that that type of degree study, you know, where you're, where you're doing both business study and programming exists today. I would be fascinated to find out if, you know, some listeners have done a course of study or know somebody who did something like that in the last five years, what schools are, are really doing, what kind of degrees are being offered. Yeah. Calling all collegiate career guidance counselors. Yeah. Bring it on. Let's have you on the show and talk through it. Absolutely. Anything else before we get out of here, Nick? Nope. Just a reminder, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey. All right. Farewell, listeners, and tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at V Journeyman for Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore. Signing off. Adios.